Ready? Welcome to Sunday School. We've come to the end of our third year, third quarter, with our Answers Bible Curriculum and our study of the Old and New Testaments. Over the last 12 lessons, we've seen, uh, we, we started with Jesus's betrayal, and then we walked through his crucifixion, his resurrection, his post-resurrection appearances and ascension, and then we saw the beginning of the church, the day of Pentecost, and how the gospel began to go forth. We saw the first martyr, Stephen. We saw the gospel go to the Samaritans. We saw it go to the people around Jerusalem. And then we ended the quarter by seeing the gospel formally go to the Gentiles. And we're going to pick up with this. Uh, we're going to pick up with what comes next. Next quarter, our first lesson in the next quarter, will be following the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. That's where we're going to be next. But today, we're going to do something special. Remember that there are review days integrated into the curriculum, and for the adult Sunday school class, they're very flexible. We can cover topics that we normally wouldn't get time to cover. That's one of our options, and that's what I'd like to do today. Last quarter, we had a question and answer session, if you remember, and one of the questions that I wanted to answer at that time, but we, we just didn't have space to, was a question that someone asked originally in Sunday school, which is, how important is it to study the Bible in the original languages? And I had given an answer in the Sunday school when it came up, but I want to refine the, uh, and expand the answer to that question. How important is it that we study the Bible in the original languages? To whet your appetite, let me illustrate, I think, two quotes that sum up an answer to that question. The first is from a famous Jewish poet. Uh, his name is Chaim Naman Bielik. He says, reading the Bible in translation is like kissing your bride through a veil. And then along with that, here's a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther says, if the languages, that's the biblical languages, if the languages had not made me positive as to the true meaning of the word, I might have still remained a chained monk engaged in quietly preaching Romish errors in the obscurity of a cloister. So is understanding the Bible and the biblical languages, the original languages, important? Definitely. And I'd like to explain that answer more fully today, pass on some insights to you, and as well as some cautions that I've gained since I've come to seminary and just I've gained as I've grown as a teacher. And there are four main questions. I want us to consider in class today. First, what are the biblical languages? I want you to actually see them, hear them, so they don't seem so mysterious to you. Why is it important or useful to study the biblical languages, even if you're not a pastor? How can I access the Bible in the original languages, especially if you've never learned a lick of Hebrew or Greek? And what cautions must I heed in studying the Bible in the original languages? So we're going to investigate each one of those questions. Lord willing, we'll have time to get through each one of those and maybe a little bit of time left over for questions. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you that we have your scriptures, that they have not passed away. And thank you, God, that we can understand them, not only through these wonderful translations that we have today, but also, God, by uh, various resources and learning we have to even study the original languages. Thank you for that, God. And I pray that this would be an enjoyable class, an edifying class today, and people would be um, thrilled to even study 
the word in the original languages. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's look, talk first about our first question. What are the biblical languages? Surprise, surprise, the Bible was not originally written in English. Yeah, I know, it's a shock. Not even the King James. That's not the original Bible. Consider the Old Testament. In what languages were the Old Testament written? Hebrew and Aramaic. Sometimes we forget about Aramaic, but Hebrew and Aramaic. And the New Testament was written in? In Greek, or a, very, a specific version of Greek, Koine Greek. But there are three languages for the Bible, are Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Now I want to briefly introduce you to each one of these languages. And we're going to start with Hebrew. Biblical Hebrew, what we call Biblical Hebrew. Now, Hebrew is a very ancient Semitic language. It comes from the Semitic language group. It's very similar to other Middle Eastern languages like Aramaic and even Arabic. They're part of the same language group. It's also related to modern Hebrew, but there have been a number of differences that have taken place in the language over time. Here's what Hebrew originally looked like. This is Paleo-Hebrew script. This is actually the alphabet, the Paleo-Hebrew alphabet. It was assimilated from the Phoenicians. It looks pretty wild. <laughs> the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament was written in these letters. These are 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And we can even still see this Paleo-Hebrew script in certain archaeological finds from ancient Israel. We can see these letters represented on those pieces of uh, um, jewelry or, or what have you. But this script changed over time. Particularly, it changed after the Babylonian conquest and exile because the conquering nations, Assyria, Babylonia, and Persia, they used Aramaic as their language of empire, at least in the Western territories in which Judea was a part. And so the Jews replaced their original alphabet, this Paleo-Hebrew script, with an Aramaic alphabet. It was still Hebrew language and Hebrew words, but it was no longer written in the same script. It was written in a similar script, the Aramaic script. And it's this Aramaic-influenced Hebrew that became what we know as Biblical Hebrew. In other words, Biblical Hebrew is the Hebrew language written with Aramaic script. And I, I've shown you a, a picture of Biblical Hebrew. When we look at, or I should say this, all the surviving copies that we have of Old Testament manuscripts are not written in Paleo-Hebrew, but Biblical Hebrew. And these are the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet in Biblical Hebrew. And I could go through each one of the letters, but for the sake of time, we'll just keep going. But what does this actually look like in text form? What does this actually look like in a sentence? Well, let me show you. Let's look at Genesis 1-1 in Hebrew. There it is. That's our biblical Hebrew text uh, written out in a verse form. Let me see if I can actually read this text to you. Remember, Hebrew is read from right to left. So the opposite of what we do in English, we read from left to right. Hebrew is read from right to left. And this is what Genesis 1-1 says in Hebrew. I'll read the Hebrew first, and then I'll break it down for you. So, Bereshith bara Elohim, eth ha-shemayim, wa eth ha-aretz. 
That is Bereshith in the beginning. So preposition be next to Rashith, beginning. Bara, he created. Elohim, he's the one doing the creation. Elohim is God. So in the beginning, God created eighth. That's a direct object, or I should actually point to it for you. Eighth here. That's a direct object marker. What did he create? Hashemayim, the heavens. What eighth? So another direct object. And then Haaretz, the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's pretty cool. So the big letters that you see here are the Hebrew letters. They're the Hebrew consonants, the 22 Hebrew letters. The little symbols above and below these big letters, they are helpful markings from those who copied the scriptures for us. These markings indicate things such as what vowels are to be inserted between the consonants, where the logical divisions are in the text, and how the text should be sung if it is being sung in a synagogue service. Now, originally, these extra markings did not, were not, they were not a part of the original text. They weren't even needed. You could, if you were a native Hebrew speaker, you, you would already intuit, you would know which vowels went in there, and you would see the logical markings, etc. But as the Jews slowly began to stop speaking Hebrew, and instead began to speak Aramaic, Greek, or even Latin, these markings became necessary. Certain rabbinical scholars, they added these markings to preserve the traditional pronunciation and understanding of Hebrew. The scholars who did this are known as the Masoretes. That's a name that refers to the Hebrew word that means tradition, Mazora. Now these Masoretes, these scholars of tradition, they were diligent to copy the Hebrew Old Testament throughout the Middle Ages, along with these pronunciation markers and various other notes. And it's these copies that they made that form the foundation of our study of the Old Testament in Hebrew today. Here's a picture of one of the Masoretic texts that's been preserved due to this diligent copying. Now, because the Masoretic the Masoretes markings are not original to the Old Testament text. That is the vowel pointings and uh, those other markings they make. They don't carry divine authority. Still, they are extremely important to us. I mean, after all, these Masoretes were quite diligent in their craft. They were much closer to the original text than we are today. So we, we consider their vowel pointings and their other markings to be highly significant. And then we would need a lot of evidence to overturn to say, oh, those are the wrong vowel pointings here. We would need a lot of evidence for us to overturn that. We're really in the debt of the Masoretes that we have this, uh, this, this text preserved. Now, the, the earliest copy, complete copy of the Masoretes work, copy of the entire Old Testament, and which we work with today, is called the Masoretic text. Maybe you've heard that sometimes when it comes to um, Bible translation or working with original languages, we work with the Masoretic text. And that's really essentially what's been preserved by the Masoretes. And we supplement our use of the Masoretic text with various other ancient uh, copies and fragments of the Old Testament, including the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we see there's a lot of uh, consistency between those, which is encouraging. So this is biblical Hebrew. 
but not all of the Old, uh, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. There are a few sections written in Aramaic. Does anybody know which two books of the Bible feature lengthy sections of Aramaic? Daniel and Ezra. And this actually is not too surprising if the shift towards um, an Aramaic script occurred after the Babylonian exile, it's not surprising that these two books that occurred after Israel was taken out of the land, after the Hebrews were subjected to Aramaic, that they contain Aramaic. I put the, the two portions on the screen for you. So it's Daniel 2, 4 to 7, 28, and then Ezra 4, 8 to 6, uh, 6 18, and 7, 12 to 26. It's actually kind of fitting that these sections are in Aramaic. In Daniel, the section, the Aramaic begins right when uh, the text actually says, and they spoke to the king in Aramaic saying, <laughs> and then it shifts to Aramaic, and it continues in Aramaic through all the interactions between uh, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's friends in Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel and Belshazzar, Daniel and Darius, all of that's in Aramaic. And even the first vision of Daniel to the end of chapter 7 is in Aramaic. In Ezra, the sections of Aramaic roughly correspond to the sections where there are letters going back and forth with the Persian king. Someone writes to the Persian king, it's in Aramaic. When the Persian king writes something back, it's in Aramaic. Uh, or when the Persian, write, or the Persian king writes on behalf of Ezra, when Ezra's journeying to Israel, it's in Aramaic. And again, that kind of makes sense. But you can see even in the, the way the Bible's, uh, the way the text appears, the influence that Aramaic was making on the people of Israel. What does Aramaic look like? Well, because Hebrew uses Aramaic script, it looks awfully similar. <laughs> so here's Daniel chapter two, verse four. This first line, this line at the top, this is Hebrew. But this second line is Aramaic. Kind of hard to tell the difference, right? That's because these languages are very similar and because Hebrew uses Aramaic script or biblical Hebrew does. It's kind of like Russian and Ukrainian today. If you know one of the languages, you can kind of make your way through the other because they're so similar and because they, they come from the same language family. Even if you look at some of the words, they might be spelled a little bit differently, pronounced slightly differently, but there's going to be a lot of crossover. So it is with Hebrew and Aramaic. I actually haven't uh, studied Aramaic myself, but as I, as I look at this, I might be able to stumble through some of the different words from what I know of Hebrew. I'm not going to try reading this for you, but this is uh, essentially when the, the wise men say to Nebuchadnezzar, tell us the king or tell us, O king, what you dreamed and we'll tell you the interpretation. Now, eventually Aramaic supplanted Hebrew as the native language of the Jews, of the people living in Palestine. Over time, it came to be that only the rabbis really still learned and studied Hebrew. It's poignant that in the New Testament, when we see Jesus crying out on the cross and quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not actually speaking Hebrew there. He's speaking Aramaic, because that would be the language that everybody was speaking at that time. That would be the language that was considered the native language of the Jews. It sounds very similar to what the Hebrew would be in Psalm 22, verse 1, but it's not exactly the same. 
because there was a shift towards Aramaic in Palestine. But it's not just Aramaic that people were speaking in Palestine. They were also speaking Greek. Now, why Greek? Isn't that a completely different language family? Why would the Jews be speaking Greek? Yes, it has to do with the conquest of a certain Macedonian king named Alexander. Starting in 334 BC, the Middle East became very dominated by Greek culture and Greek language due to the conquests of Alexander the Great and due to his successors who set up many empires in the same land that Alexander conquered. His successors were Greek, or if they were Macedonian, they were um, committed to Greek culture and Greek language, and they sought to spread it in the lands in which they ruled. I show you a little map here showing Alexander's conquest. This is uh, where Greek influence began to dominate. And these were the same lands in which the Jews were living since the Babylonian exile. Remember, not all the Jews came back to Palestine when Cyrus gave his decree. Many of them stayed in Babylon. Some of them uh, had gone to Egypt and they stayed there. Others moved to other places in the Mediterranean, especially on the eastern part. So these Jews, wherever they were, they came under the influence of Hellenization. That's just another way to say Greekification. Hellene is a word that basically means Greek. And so they were Greekified. They were subjected to Greek influence. One way or another, all the Jews and really all the people in these lands were subjected to Greek culture and language. Now, the version of Greek language that was being disseminated in these territories is what we call Koine Greek. Koine just means common, the common Greek, a vernacular Greek, a simplified Greek that's based off of, but again, simplified from the Athenian version of Greek that would have been spoken back in Athens. A little bit simpler, more explicit version of that Greek. Now, as the Jews were subjected to this, many Jews learned the Greek language. Other Jews went even further and they totally embraced Greek culture. They forsook their Jewish heritage and they became like the Greeks. But many Jews simply learned the Greek language. Now, one effect of this Hellenization was that, and as people are learning to speak Greek and no longer speaking Hebrew, it became necessary to translate the Jewish scriptures into Greek. And in the third century BC, it appears, a group of Jewish scholars completed such a project of translation in Egypt. They translated the Old Testament into Greek. And what do we call this translation? The Septuagint. You may have seen that term before, the Septuagint, abbreviated LXX, because Septuagint means 70. And LXX is how you would write 70 in Roman numerals. A Septuagint itself is a Latin word. It comes from this legend that the translators, there were about 70 of them, actually 72, and they finished their translation project in about 70 days. Therefore, their work became known as 70. Now, probably not true, but that's what they said anyways. Now, this Greek translation of the Old Testament would be very significant, first of all, because it's quoted in the New Testament, but also because it would become the primary Old Testament version used by Gentiles in the early church. Septuagint was very significant. 
Now, the Jews continued under the rule of the Greeks for more than 200 years. But even after the Maccabean revolts and the later conquest by the Romans, Greek influence was still so strong that the people in these lands conquered by the Greeks continued to speak Greek. In fact, the Romans themselves, even though they conquered really all the Mediterranean, they ended up admiring Greek culture and even Greek language so much that all over the empire, even the Romans embraced Hellenization. Many Romans also learned Greek. So by the time of Jesus's birth around 5 BC, the whole Mediterranean, especially the East, was speaking Koine Greek in addition to their other local languages. So in Palestine, that would be Aramaic. They're speaking Aramaic and Koine Greek at the same time. Now, does this mean that every person in every single area was a fluent Greek speaker? No, of course not. But it still was the common language. It was the lingua franca of the time, kind of like English is today. There are certain countries in the world that speak English, and there are certain other countries that don't have English as the native language, but it's still the language that everybody tries to learn because it's such an important language in our world. If you want to engage in business or if you want to engage in science, you need to learn English. And so it was at their time. Greek was the common language. So then, is it any surprise that when the New Testament writers composed their works and letters that they wrote in the common language of the day, a language that could be understood by both Jew and Gentile? They wrote the New Testament in Koine Greek. Now, what does Koine Greek look like? Well, here's the alphabet, the ancient Greek alphabet, again, related to modern Greek, but a little bit different. Looks like maybe a little bit more familiar to us. Some of the letters kind of look like some of our own letters. This is a, a Greek script, not exactly a Latin script. So some of the letters are a little bit different, but Greek featured both capitals and lowercase letters. And Greek would be written from left to right, just like our English language is. <clears throat> now the biblical writers wrote their works, the New Testament writers wrote their works with efficiency in mind. They weren't looking to write books for a library. They were writing letters to individuals. And we see that even in the New Testament text, you know, Paul writing to this church or Paul writing to this person or even the gospels. Luke, I'm writing to Theophilus. Therefore, because they were writing in this certain mo mode, they wrote with efficiency in mind. They wanted to conserve writing materials because it would be expensive to not conserve and It'd be easier to transport their letters if they wrote in a very efficient way. Therefore, our New Testament manuscripts often look something like this. I just showed you the Greek alphabet on the other page. What do you notice about this manuscript? Right, yes. So no or little spacing, there's no punctuation marks, and it's in all capital letters. This was to conserve space on the writing. If you don't use lowercase, then you don't have to have extra space between the lines, and uh, you don't have, need to use up as much ink, and you don't have to use as many sheets of papyrus or parchment or whatever you're working on. This was for efficiency. Now, this wouldn't be hard for the recipients to understand. If you're a native Greek speaker or if you're a fluent Greek speaker, you can understand this no problem. 
And we could do the same thing in English. If I write a message to you in all capital letters, you can probably decipher it with ease. Let's try it. Somebody read this statement. Go ahead and raise your hand and I'll call on you. Yes, uh, Sue. Very good. And that's basically what the Greeks would do with their manuscripts as they received them. There's no problem that they received it in all capital letters because they knew their language. And we can do the same thing with English today. But if you're not a fluent Greek speaker, then this manuscript with all capitals and no punctuation, that is pretty difficult to decipher. So when we look at our Greek New Testaments today, or when we study the New Testament in the original language, we don't study it in this way. The text has been modified for us. We put in upper and lower case. We put in spacing. We put in punctuation marks. And we even put in accent marks to help us distinguish between certain words and to aid pronunciation. Now, when we alter the text like this, are the extra additions inspired? No, they're not. It's just like the Masoretes notation. They're not inspired, but they help us work with the text. Moreover, the scholars who have made these alterations to the text for us, like the Masoretes, they have a good handle on what they're doing. So we want to, um, we can have confidence in their decisions and we want a really solid case of evidence to overturn what they decided and say, okay, there are a few ambiguous places in the New Testament where it's not clear whether this phrase goes to the previous sentence or the one that comes after it. And so we want to look at those situations with a little bit more care. But our text looks a little different. What does it look like? Well, let me show you. Here is John 3.16 in Koine Greek. You can see it's in upper and lower case here at, with all the extra marks to make this more readable. As I said, Greek is written from left to right, read from left to right. Let me read this to you. You know John 3.16, so this won't be a surprise to you. But I'll read it to you first in Greek, and then I'll break down each one of the words. So, uh, starting with a... Uh, I'll use my mouse here that you can see where I'm reading. So, Hutos gar agapesen hathaas tan kosman hosta tan huion tan monogene edoken. Hinapas hapestuon es autan me apalitai al eke zoen ionian. Now let me break down each one of those words. So first, hutos, thus, gar, for, for thus. Agape sen, that's a verb. Um, he loved. You can see agape in there. For he thus loved. Who? Who loved? Hatheos, that's God. For God so loved Tan Kosman, the world. For God so loved the world, hosta, that, Tan Huion, the son or his son, Tan Monagene, his only begotten son. So we add the adjective to this first part here. Uh, his, that his only begotten son, Edoken, another verb, he gave. That he gave his only begotten son, Hina, so that. Pashapistuon, that everyone who believes, Ace Autan, in him, so that everyone who believes in him may apolitai. That's another verb here with a, a, a negative um, 
uh, something that indicates no or not, so that they might not die, they might not perish, al, contraction of Allah, but eke, they might have zoen ionion, life eternal or life everlasting. Pretty cool. Now, side note, I find Greek much easier to learn and speak than Hebrew because Greek is more similar to English and English features many words that come actually from the Greek language. But other people find Hebrew easier to learn and really both are learnable. Certainly I myself, I'm not a master of either of these languages, let alone Aramaic, but I have through my classes and study come a long way. Now truly the difficulty of Hebrew or Greek, it often depends on the particular author or book that you are looking at in the Bible. Consider, in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch is very straightforward and actually pretty easy to understand once you know a little bit of Hebrew. In contrast, Isaiah, for instance, is extremely complicated. It's one of the most difficult books to translate in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Apostle John writes with the simplest Greek, while on the other, on the other side of the um, bracket, we have Paul in 2 Corinthians, very more advanced, uses lots of unique words. Or the writer of Hebrews, very complicated, much more advanced um, style of expression, more difficult to translate and interpret. But again, each one of these is able to be understood. So we've met the different biblical languages. We've answered our first question, what are the biblical languages? But why study them? Aren't translations good enough? Aren't English translations good enough? Well, it is true that if we only had the English translations today of the Bible, we could be still thoroughly equipped. The Bible affirms the use of translation. As I mentioned to you, the Septuagint is even quoted in the New Testament, and it's quoted as the word of God. The New Testament affirms that it is right and good to use translations of the Bible. And we do have great translations today. New American Standard, ESV, NIV, New King James Version. They're all great translations. And many scholars have gone over the original texts and they've created these translations and they've refined these translations. They've gone to this rigor so that not everyone in the church has to. These translations have been tested and refined by theologians, translators, scholars, etc. And thank God for these things. But there's still good reasons for us corporately, and even you individually, to study the Bible in the original languages. And let me give you four reasons. Four reasons why it's still good, still important for you and for us to study the Bible in the original languages. First, it makes God's word more vivid. It makes it more vivid. I've used the analogy with you before, and this isn't original to me, I've heard someone else use it. But looking at the Bible in the original languages is like looking in a high definition TV screen. When you see something in high definition or whatever the most advanced way that you can look at televisions today, you see nuances that you didn't see before. You see details that were not clear in just standard definition. You could still see it and understand in standard definition, but high definition you see even more. It gives you a deeper appreciation for what you see. So it is with the Bible translations. Actually, let me use one more analogy. I once wrote a poem for my wife 
in German. I studied German in high school and college. And I wrote this poem for her because she studied it a little bit also. And uh, I, I think the poem actually turned out quite beautifully. And she was very appreciative of it when I gave it to her. But it's been some years since I, I wrote that poem. And she and I have both forgotten some of our German. So I, not too long ago, I decided I want to translate this poem into English so that she and I can still appreciate it. And I did, and then I presented it to her, but once I translated it into English, it, it didn't have quite the same punch that it did when I wrote it in German. Like some of the expressions don't sound quite as uh, dazzling. They don't, they don't have the same um, image-making quality that it did when I wrote it in the original language. So it is with the Bible. You get certain, um, there, there's just a certain quality to the text that can't come through all the way in translation. Yes, you can still understand it. You still get the, the standard definition view. You can still see it, but there's a vividness. There's certain qualities that you won't be able to detect anymore. Let me give you an example of this. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, we hear this statement, or, or we hear the following regarding Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. Genesis 22, that's the whole event of Abraham going to sacrifice his son at God's command. And in verse 5 of that chapter, it says this. I'm just going to be reading the English to you. Genesis 22, 5. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Now, in English, we might look at that statement from Abraham and say, and where he says, we will worship and return to you, and wonder, did he really mean that? Was he just saying that to, so his servants wouldn't become suspicious of what he was about to do with Isaac? I mean, after all, he's going to sacrifice his son. How did he know he was going to return with his son? Did he know? Was he lying? In the English, it's not entirely clear. Now, we have Hebrews that tell us in the New Testament that he did believe that his son would rise from the dead. But from the text itself, at least in the English, it's, we couldn't say for sure. But in the original language, you can. Because the verbs for that phrase, we will worship and return, are a special kind of verb. They are cohortatives. Now, you don't have to necessarily worry too much what that means. They indicate a resolve on behalf of the speaker. A cohortative of resolve in Hebrew means that the person who's saying that he's going to do something is intent on making it happen. So when Abraham says, we will worship and return to you, he's saying it in an extremely confident way. I am resolved, we are resolved to worship and come back. In other words, you don't need to go to the book of Hebrews to, to know that even at that moment, in Genesis 22:5, Abraham believed that God would raise his son from the dead. That's faith on display, and it comes through the original language. You couldn't indicate that in, Hebrew, or in English, but it's there if you could see the original language. So this is one reason to study God's word in the original languages. It makes it more vivid. Another reason is that it gives you a greater ability to see the connections in the Bible. There's certain words, phrases that are purposefully used by the authors of both the Old and New Testaments that are, that are used to help you see a connection to another passage. They use the exact same verb or they use the exact same phrase. English translations don't always show this because in English, we have a stylistic difference to the original writers. In English, if you use the same word over and over again, it is a stylistic error. 
it shows that you seem to have a lack of ability to use different words. You've got to use a synonym in English or it sounds clunky. Not so with the original languages. In Hebrew and Greek, you can use the same word again and again and no strike against you. But in English, we, we feel compelled to use synonyms. But this sometimes helps us miss connections in the text. For example, Jonah chapter one, and you can actually open there if you like, Jonah chapter one. Jonah chapter one, I wanna talk about the first couple of verses. Verses one to three, we get that opening statement from God about Jonah's commission. And notice what we see in the first three verses. Jonah chapter one, verses one to three, it says, the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me. Verse three, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord or Yahweh. Now you can kind of see a connection here in the English. Verse two says, where God says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. But then verse three says, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. Arise, rose up, those come from the same root in English. Even though they're not quite the same word, it's the same root and same idea. But in the Hebrew, it's actually the same verb. It's the same verb being used two different times. And there's an ironic contrast between the two, right? God says, rise up, go to Nineveh. But instead, Jonah rises up and it goes to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction of where God wanted him to go. This is a connection that we can see more easily in the original text. But it keeps going. Look down at verse 6. Jonah chapter 1, verse 6. We see the same same sort of thing when Jonah's on the boat, the storm has risen up, Jonah's asleep. And so it says in verse six, so the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Now, that phrase, get up and call, you wouldn't be able to tell in the English, but it's the exact same phrase that was used in verse two, where God says, arise, go to Nineveh, and cry. Same word for get up is the word arise. And same word for call in verse two is the word cry in verse six. So again, there's this deep irony being highlighted for us in the text. God gave Jonah a certain command, he wouldn't obey it. And now godless pagans are telling Jonah to do the very thing that God told him to do. Get up and cry. Go and call upon your God. And you see this throughout the book of Jonah. It just keeps being references back to what God originally commanded. And yet Jonah was not willing to do. And this furthers the point of the book of Jonah. Jonah is really representative of the people of Israel who are unwilling to fulfill God's calling to be a light for Yahweh in the earth and to all peoples. So this is another reason for us to study the Bible in the original languages. We see the connections more easily. Yeah, Caleb. Yeah, uh, good. Right, good question, Caleb. Why don't they just translate it the same way each time? And I think it goes back to uh, what I mentioned earlier, just the style 
that we have in English, which is you can't use the same word again and again. It doesn't make for flowing reading. It sounds clunky. Now, there are times, or the translators are intent on being consistent, but they also, because this is the way the English language works, we use synonyms. And so they're not going to be using the same word every single time, especially if they're being used in close succession. You might find that if the words were far apart, they'll use the same word each time. But in English, we just have that stylistic difference. So it's unfortunate, but that's, that's what you have to do if you're going to translate into English. So that's probably the reason. So this is the second reason for us to study the word in the original languages. Third reason, and this goes a little bit more, these first two were kind of more like the initial quote from the, um, the Jewish poet I gave you at the beginning of class. And these latter two are more in line of what Martin Luther said. Another reason we want to study the Bible in the original languages is because it gives us greater accuracy. It allows us to be more accurate. Now, it's not to say that our English translations are inaccurate, that they're bad. No, no, but sometimes they could be better. Now, this has been an area of my own personal growth. I'm not sure of how much I've said this in Sunday school, but there was a time I was young and immature when it came to studying the Bible, and I would do my own study, and then I'd look at what our English translations would say, and I'd say, why do they translate it like that? These people are confused. I know better. Well, <laughs> translators are not perfect, but there's always a reason for how they translate something the way that they do. And they're really trying to be accurate with the text. And sometimes you have to kind of um, choose between the lesser of two evils when moving from the original language into English. For example, many of you know about the word doulos in the New Testament in Greek. What does doulos mean? It means slave. And it's related to the verb douluo, which means to serve as a slave. But most of the times in the New Testament, it's not translated as slave, it is translated as servant. Now, on the one hand, we could say, all right, that's a bad translation. But not really. There is, it is okay that it is translated servant, even though it's missing a nuance. But there's a reason they've chosen to do that. Translators, besides perhaps not wanting to be offensive with the term slave, they have felt that it is not an accurate indicator of what the word actually means because of what's going to come up in the mind of the audience when they see the term slave. When an American sees the term slave, he probably thinks of antebellum slavery. That is the slavery of whites against blacks in America up into the Civil War. And that conjures a certain concept of slavery, which is not exactly what the New Testament talks about when it speaks of a slave. There are some parallels to be sure, but it's not quite the same. And so they say, if we use the term slave, that's going to give people an inaccurate idea. Let's use the term servant. And even though that's not fully accurate either, it's closer to what the New Testament is trying to indicate. But there are problems with servant too. So you could then perhaps go the way that the New American Standard does, and you don't translate it as slave or servant, you translate it as bond servant. It's kind of like a mix between a slave and a servant. You got the idea of slave with the word bond, but it also has the idea of servant, so it doesn't conjure the exact idea of slave. But that has its own problem because what's a bond servant? Now you have to explain that term. All this to say, if you know what the original language says, then you're not caught in this kind of um, uh, conflict between, oh, which, which is the best word to use, servant, slave, bond servant. 
you can just talk about what the original term means. Dulos, it means a slave, but it's not the slave that you're thinking of in America in the 1800s. And you can explain what that means. Really, when it comes to servant and slave, if you're going to be a faithful interpreter and explainer of the text, you just have to explain the term no matter which one your translation uses, because people need to have an idea of what that really means. And you can do that once you know the original languages, or at least know a little bit of the original languages. This is the idea of making the Bible more accurate. It's still accurate enough in our translation, but we can make it more accurate by knowing the original languages. And then a fourth, and this comes right on the heels of what I just explained, knowing and staying the Bible in the original languages gives us a greater ability to defend the Bible. It's because if there's one thing that false teachers love to do, it's to appeal to the original languages of the Bible. And why? Well, because when you appeal to the original languages, you can claim a secret knowledge or an elevated authority that will be free from criticism from most people in the church. Because if you make a claim about the original language and other people don't know the original language, how can they counter you? And this is most evident in that longstanding point of conflict in John 1.1. You know John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, you know, people who deny the deity of Christ, like the Jehovah Witnesses, it's not translated in their Bibles, and the word was God, but how is it translated? I heard a couple of different things, but the idea is a God, and the word was a God. Now, what's their justification for doing so? Well, they appeal to the original language, because they say in the Greek, there is no article before the word God. It doesn't say and the God, it's by extension, by inference, it must be indefinite. So we need to supply the indefinite article, a God. Now, if you don't know Greek, if you don't know the original language, how are you going to respond to that? But if you do know a little bit of Greek and you know something about the original language, then it's actually not very difficult to respond to that argument at all. Because you can explain in Greek, not having an article does not make something automatically indefinite. In fact, there is no indefinite article in Greek or even in Hebrew. And even the article in Greek doesn't correspond exactly to the English article, the. In fact, in Greek, a noun that has no article could still be definite. Or it could be also qualitative, which means it, it describes a characteristic of the, of the thing being mentioned. Moreover, the Jehovah Witnesses and others who translate this passage are right. They're not consistent in applying their own rule that no article means indefinite. They don't do that elsewhere in the New Testament. Really, when we apply the rules of Greek to John 1.1, it is a profound declaration of the triune God. The absence of the article, it indicates that the word is the same as God and yet distinct from God. If the article were there, then it would mean that father and son were the same. It would be modalism. But that's not the way that John wrote it. The absence of the article means that father and the son are the same essence. The word and God are the same essence. And yet they are distinct. It's actually the Trinity being explained in one verse. So this is another reason that it is good for us, important for us to study the original languages, study the Bible in the original languages, so that we can defend the Bible against the claims of false teachers. 
Of course, this was instrumental in Martin Luther's life and ministry. It was the correction of certain false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church when it came to the original languages and translation that really fueled his gospel ministry and the proclamation of salvation by faith. So to sum up then, why should we study the Bible in the original languages? We encounter the language of the Bible more vividly. We see the connections in the Bible more readily, understand the meaning of the Bible more accurately, and we're able to defend the Bible more thoroughly. But how can we do this? How can you, how can I study the Bible in the original languages when I've not gone to seminary? Well, great question. Let me see if I can briefly address that. How can you access the Bible in the original languages? You might be surprised to learn that there are many ways that you can do this. Even you, even each one of you. God has gifted us as American Christians in the 21st century with abundant resources to access the Bible in the original languages. First of all, you can actually learn these languages yourselves. I know that may sound crazy, but you can. You can enroll in a course at a college or seminary. You can buy a textbook that will help teach you. Or you can even watch free lessons online, do the suggested homework. For example, one website that does this is called Daily Dose of Hebrew or DailyDoseOfGreek.com. There are lessons on understanding each of the parts of the language. And then once you've completed all the lessons and the homework, there are two minute daily doses you can take. They just study a, a verse and give an insight on it to keep you up in your language ability. You can do this. You can even purchase for yourself a Greek New Testament or a Hebrew Old Testament. But that's not the only way. Um, you can also utilize biblical language tools. There are many tools that exist now to give you insight into particular words or phrases in a given text based on the original language. There's various Bible software you can purchase you may have heard of things like Logos, Accordance, or Bible Works. I'll show you Logos in just a second. You can use free resources from the web. You go to websites like blueletterbible.org, and you can find an interlinear translation of both the New Testament and the Old Testament with links to concordance and lexicon. It even tells you where that specific word, Hebrew or Greek word, appears every instance of the Bible and how it's translated in those words, in those instances. And you can find the same thing at biblehub.com. Or you can even purchase a paper interlinear version. So interlinear means that the English is interwoven with the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic of the Bible as you move your way through the Bible. And you could even use this when you come to church. The pastor is uh, preaching through a text and he makes some point about the original word. And you can say, look, there it is right there. I can see it right even in my own Bible or on my, on my computer. Oh, I should mention there's apps also. Blue Letter Bible, Bible Hub, Scripture Direct, they also have apps, interlinear apps that you can download for free and use those resources. Let me actually show you. I'll exit my PowerPoint for just a second. You can see here, this is actually what Logos looks like. This is what Logos looks like on my computer. I've got my original language on the one side. I've got my lexicon open on the right side. Whenever I, I hover my mouse over a term at the bottom of the screen, it'll give me what that term means and it'll even parse that term for me. Or if I double click on a word, it will then find that word in the lexicon and then I have that lexicon entry right there. 
Now, Logos, uh, depending on what you purchase or some other Bible program, it can be expensive, not necessary, necessarily um, what you need to get, but it is available. Here's blueletterbible.com. If I just go to Blue Letter Bible, and then I want to find a, I want to look at a particular verse. Let's say I want to look at John 3. I look it up in the New American Standard. and then shows me all the verses of John 3. I go down to, say, John 3.16. I want to see something about the original language here. I go to Tools. Look at Interlinear. And then there it is. Here's the Greek text. And then I have an interlinear of the text broken down for me. Uh, I can do interlinear or reverse interlinear. Reverse interlinear, it starts with the English, and then it gives me the Greek root of whatever word is, is there. Uh, loved, it comes from agapeo. Or the world, it's cosmos. Or I can do the regular interlinear, or it starts with the Greek in the original form, and then it gives me the English correspondence. Uh, so the verb in the original is agapesen, from agapa, uh, agapao, and you can even see the pronunciation right here, and then the English on the right side. But there's more than that. You can click on one of these uh, one of these things. This is a link to the concordance in Strong's. And let's say we do that for agape sen. And now it gives you even more information about that word. Okay, it's a verb. Um, it gives you the etymology. It comes from phileo. Um, here are the ways that it can be translated. Here's the how many times it appears in the King James. Here's the definition from Strong's. Here's the lexicon entry. Here's every instance of it in the New Testament. <laughs> Look, it shows you every verse and, and where it appears. It gives you it in the English. And this is all in the New American Standard. And I can keep going down, keep going down, keep going down. I can see every single entry. That's really helpful if you want to understand how a term is being used throughout the Bible. So tons of free resources for you just at this one website. And BibleHub.com is very similar. Here's that interlinear of the passage I mentioned earlier, Genesis 1.1. You can see the different Hebrew words, see the English translation, and you can see uh, how you pronounce the Hebrew words. And, and this is a link to the concordance entry. And I get the same thing that I was showing you on the other website. More information about the word, every instance of it appearing in the Bible, and how it's translated, uh, lexicon entry, etc. So a lot for you here. You can find the same thing on the apps that you can download from these, um, these two websites, Bible, Blue Letter Bible and Bible Hub, and Scripture Direct has something similar. So lots, lots for you to take advantage of. Let me go back to the PowerPoint now. All right, so you can use these free resources, and you can also benefit from the language inside of others. You can use study Bibles that, while not giving you the whole original text, they'll often make notes about the original language. It might be a note in the margin, or there might be uh, something at the bottom of the study Bible page that tells you something about the original language of that particular verse. Or there, you can also benefit from commentaries. And you say, how do I know what's a good commentary? Well, if you know Tim Challies, he has a section on his website where he recommends commentaries for each book of the Bible or most books of the Bible. That's a helpful resource. Or you can even use free online commentaries. Now, if they're free, that means they're probably old, but that doesn't mean that they're bad. I often consult Matthew Henry's commentary. Matthew Henry was a Puritan from the 1600s. His complete commentary is available online for free. Calvin has his sermon slash commentaries available online. Uh, Spurgeon also has his analysis of verses online. I find those things at steadylight.org slash commentaries. I'm able to look at each one of those things, and you can too. 
So again, another way that you can access insight into the original languages. So use of the Bible in the original languages is not as far as you far away from you as you think. And as you access these resources, you can see some of the subtleties that don't come through in the English translation. You can see some of the connections that are not as evident in the English translation. And you can also get more background about certain key terms in the text. Now, am I saying that this automatically should become a part of your daily devotional? Well, no, I would definitely encourage you to take advantage of your excellent Bible, English Bible translations as you feed yourself on God's word every day. But as you have extra time, as you need to wrestle with something, especially in, in a particular passage or verse, or if you're responding to the claim of someone speaking against the truth, take advantage of these resources to study the Bible in the original languages. But you do need to have some caution as you do this. This is a great power at your disposal. But as, as someone once said, with great power comes great responsibility. I just want to give you a couple cautions about using the Bible in original language as we, as we close. And I'll have to do this quickly because we're short on time. Alexander Pope, English poet, once wrote, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Pyrian spring. There shallow drafts intoxicate the brain and drinking largely sobers us again. What was he saying? Well, he was cautioning against the reckless use of a little bit of learning. Once you understand a little bit based on the original languages, you might think you know everything and that whatever the translators have decided or whatever some teacher has said is totally wrong because you know, you've looked at the original. Well, remember, and I'm going to give you four of these things here briefly. Remember that you don't know everything. Yeah, you can learn things from studying the original text, but there have been plenty of scholars who have gone before you, people who've done it, the translations that we have in English, they know more than you do very likely. There's a reason they've decided to translate things as they've done. There's a reason they've included certain words that are listed in italics in your New American Standard Bible. That means they don't literally appear in the original text, but there's a reason they've included them because that they're going to help you understand what the original meaning is. You need to have a little bit of humility as you uncover, or as you study the original, um, the original language. Be ready for Greek and Hebrew and even Aramaic to have nuances that you might not quickly understand. So be cautious as you, as you study. And if you find something that seems to contradict what you've largely, largely heard, check your work. See what commentaries and study Bibles have to say. And see even what your pastor has to say. Along those lines, beware novelty. Beware novel interpretations and conclusions. If you find that your study leads you to a conclusion that's totally different than what pretty much everybody else has said, be very, be very cautious about that. It's a phrase that we use in a seminary, or I've heard many times in seminary. It goes like this. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. As Christians, we are not charged with discovering new truth. We are charged with holding fast what has been handed down what was once and for all delivered to the saints. That doesn't mean, though, that traditions are always correct, but we should beware novelty. Again, along these same lines, prepare for differences to how English works. Don't look for a total one-to-one -one correspondence, like English grammar works like this. Hebrew and, and Greek grammar must work the same way. No, not necessarily. Languages are complex. 
They have lots of nuances to them. Be ready for things to be a little different than what they are in English. One great example of this is the verbal systems. In English, we, our verbs work primarily, or our verbs emphasize time, when an action took place, past, present, future, etc. But for verbs in Hebrew and, and um, Greek, they're not so much emphasizing time as kind of action, not when the action took place, but what was the manner of the action. So things are going to be a little different. Got to be ready for that. And then finally, remember that context is still king. Context is still king. Access to the original languages can give you a lot of resources when it comes to word studies. You can find out where the word came from, what the different parts of the word mean, how it's used throughout the Bible. But remember, the chief element in determining the meaning of a word in a particular passage is that passage's context. Words can mean a lot of different things. It's how they're used in a particular instance that shows you exactly which meaning of that word is meant. So in all your extra resources, don't forget context is still king. So in sum, what have we seen today? We've seen that the Bible was written in, or we've seen the original languages. We've seen it's been written in biblical Hebrew, biblical Aramaic, Koine Greek. We've seen that there are important benefits to be had in studying the Bible in the original languages. The Bible becomes more vivid. We see the connections more easily. It becomes more accurate and more defensible. We've seen that there are many resources to allow Christians access to the original languages of the text of the Bible. But we've seen that there also should be a caution and humility that we should exercise when studying the original languages. It is a great power at our disposal, but we must handle it appropriately. Now, again, does everyone in Christ's church need to become an expert in the biblical languages and the original text of scripture? The answer is some do. We do need some to be experts, to guard and help everyone else but not everyone needs to be. Nevertheless, everyone can, no matter what kind of, or how long you've been a Christian, everyone can benefit from learning the Bible even a little bit in the original languages. This will help you become more like Christ, enjoy him more, and declare his word with greater confidence and boldness. Wow, we actually got through everything. That's amazing, but we are a little bit over time. If you have questions about what you heard today, you can email me. I'll be glad to answer your question. Next time we come back to Sunday school, we're jumping right back into the book of Acts and Paul's first missionary journey. And that will be our final quarter of study, or at least in this first run of our study of the entire Old Testament and New Testament. Let's close in prayer now. Lord God, we thank you that we have the Bible in English. That is the great grace. And we know that many have suffered to give us the Bible in English. But God, we also thank you that we have access to the original languages, that we can see Actually, the original way you put your words down, that's so amazing. Lord, I thank you for that. I pray, God, that you would bless the people as they access these different resources and that you would uh, guide them and bless them and guard them. Lord, I pray that you would bless the rest of their service today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you're welcome. I'll see you next week.